We're in the midst of the chapter on the unapprehendability of the Enlightenment. But I thought I would begin with uh, reading the um, uh, verse from the Dhammapada I mentioned um, last time, the last reading we had, uh, and we were talking about puns and double meanings and such like. So this is from a, a, a footnote in the, the book, The Pilgrim Karmanita, which um, was a, a Buddhist novel written uh, in 1906, so more than 100 years ago, and um, was translated into English in 1911, and then uh, it was a slightly sort of uh, <coughs> oldie-worldie, uh, uh, antiquated English. And so... Um, in the 90s, I did a, uh, a slightly more uh, updated edition and uh, produced lots of notes and references for it. So this is um, in the story, not to go into too much detail, but the story hinges around um, the, uh, the hero, who's called Kamanita, uh, spending uh, an evening with the Buddha. Um, he's declared himself to be a disciple of the Buddha. He's gone forth to be a, a wanderer and... He's on his way to try and meet the Buddha. He's, he's heard that his teachings are wonderful and inspiring. And uh, he um, ends up sharing a room with the Buddha, but not realizing who he is. And that, uh, so the story is based on the, um, the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, Sutta number 140 in the Majjhima Nikaya, that's been mentioned a lot. And uh, in, this, in the original Sutta, it's a, a wanderer called Pukusati, who's the, um, the one who shares the room with the Buddha. Anyway, the, the whole uh, story of the pilgrim Karmanita hinges around Karmanita not realizing who he's spending the, um, the evening with. In the Sutta, Pukusati, halfway through the Buddha's Dhamma talk, he realizes, I think I know who my friend is. <laughs> and he, he realizes, right, <laughs> I was on my way to meet the Buddha and here he is. But in the uh, pilgrim Karmanita, he does not recognize who he's sharing the room with and the whole long uh, involved story uh, evolves uh, from that. So anyway, this is a, a, a <coughs> footnote that comes uh, in the story where the Buddha's been expounding the Dhamma and Karmanita uh, doesn't like what he's saying because it seems to be very life-negating and uh, nihilistic. And the name Karmanita means something like lusty or randy, you know, like karma is sense desire, so it's like being called randy. You know, some people can go through life with a name like that and <laughs> deal with the, uh, the kind of um, uh, the <coughs> effect that it has on people. One of our, our uh, ex-monks, Ajahn Kittisaro, his name was Randolph Weinberg, so of course he grew up being called Randy. But in America, Randy doesn't mean what it means in England. So when he got a scholarship to be at Oxford for a year, <coughs> when the... And people would, he would introduce himself, he'd say, Hi, I'm Randy. <laughs> then, of course, his fellow students would say, Well, good for you. <laughs> Such things as that. So, so anyway, the, uh, but the point being that uh, uh, Karmanita is a kind of life-affirming um, <clears throat> and uh, a lustful type. And um, he hears these teachings of the Buddha and he takes offense. And, and, and so then he's, he's sort of... Um, sweating and agitated and upset and, and uh, then he asks the fatal question which is have you heard these words from the, mas the mouth of the master yourself have you heard these words before in the past from the, from the master himself and the way he puts the question he says, have you heard these words before from the master himself the Buddha says no I cannot truly say that I have <laughs> And then Kawanita says, I knew it, I knew it. This is just your own kind of foolish creations. You know. If you met the Buddha, I'm sure you would think differently. Then, kind of. So he didn't listen carefully enough. But uh, the author, Karl Gillerup, who was Danish, was, uh, was very um, uh, inspired and brilliant because he bases that understanding is also um, uh, is founded in the teachings. And uh, that you do find that same kind of incident, not just with the Buddha, but also with other disciples. So uh, this is a footnote to um, the Buddha saying, No, brother, he replied, I cannot truly say that I have. So, uh, so the footnote talks about that, and then we eventually get to the, um, the quote from the Dhammapada, if you're wondering how we... If you thought that I'd lost track of that original idea, I didn't, but it's, 
it leads up to that. But this response, absolutely crucial to Karmanita's tale, is again firmly based in the Theravada scriptures. There is an exchange between a wise lay disciple of the Buddha, called Chitta, literally heart, and the Niganta Nataputta, the founder and head of an ascetic spiritual group that are now are known today as the Jains. Chitta is asked by Nataputta, Do you have faith in the teaching of the Buddha that there is mental balance, samadhi, without directed and sustained thought, that directed and sustained thought can cease? That's the question. Okay. Do you have faith in the teaching of the Buddha that there is mental balance without directed and sustained thought, that directed and sustained thought can cease? And Chitta responds, Herein, sir, I do not have faith in the teaching of the Buddha that there is mental balance without directed and sustained thought, that directed and sustained thought can cease. The Niganta Nataputta is heartily pleased with this response, assuming that A, this well-known disciple of the Buddha is publicly expressing doubt in his teacher, and B, that he agrees with the Niganta Nataputta's own beliefs, quote, how straight, guileless, and, and ingenuous is Chitta, one who believes that thinking can cease, might as well believe that the mind can be caught in a net, or that the river Ganga could be held back with one's own fist. So he thinks that Chitta agrees with him, so he's really happy about that. Chitta then, however, goes on to describe his own experience of deep states of meditative absorption, jhana, in several of which there is both a perfection of mental balance and a complete cessation of thinking, concluding his description with the words, knowing and seeing thus for myself, why should I have to believe the words of any samana or brahmin? Naturally, his questioner is not happy with this and accuses him, how crooked, how crafty, how counterfeiting is the household, householder chitta. But Chitta has been absolutely truthful all along. The problem was that the Niganta Nataputta was unmindful of the way in which he posed the question. And so that exchange is found in uh, the Sangyutta Nikaya, the collection on Chitta, which is uh, Sangyutta 41, Sutta number 8. So then, uh, also following this, um, then uh, they have an um, example of uh, Venerable Sariputta saying the same thing. Well, it's a very similar thing. Venerable Sariputta, one of the Buddha's disciples, was very astute. This is Ajahn Chah talking in uh, Food for the Heart. Venerable Sariputta, one of the Buddha's disciples, was very astute. Once when the Buddha was expanding the Dhamma, he turned to this monk and asked, Sariputta, do you believe this? Sariputta replied, no, I don't yet believe it. The Buddha praised his answer. That's very good, Sariputta. You are one who is endowed with wisdom. One who is wise doesn't readily believe. They listen with an open mind and then weigh the truth of the matter before believing or disbelieving. That's in uh, uh, Food for the Heart. So Ajahn Chah's story is a free retelling of the Dhammapada commentary background story to Dhammapada verse 97. And uh, if you look in Ajahn Chah's collected teachings, he, he quotes this encounter several times. Uh, I think I've counted four times where it appears. And it was a very common theme for him because he'd always be trying to encourage people, don't believe me, but uh, find out for yourself. Because, uh, like I was saying last time, people uh, are very, very keen to uh, endow the teacher with, with uh, great authority and uh, all-encompassing wisdom. But Ajahn Chah would always say, don't just believe me, you know, find out for yourself. And, um, and he would quote this encounter where you have... Um, the, the Buddha's chief disciple, um, <clears throat> and the the, uh, uh, the Buddha giving a Dhamma talk, and then saying to Sari, Venerable Sariputta, have you heard me say this before? And Sariputta said, no, I haven't heard this teaching before. And the Buddha said, well, I've never given it before, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's why you haven't heard it before. Do you believe it's true? And then Sariputta says, no, I don't yet believe it. And so Ajahn Chah would praise that, and, and you'd think, well, someone, the Buddha's chief disciple, you know, a great guru and the chief disciple saying, I don't believe my teacher. You think, oh, how could he be so rude? How could he be you know, so kind of outrageous? Well, how, uh, how conceited, how deluded, how, um, how kind of disrespectful. But uh, and then Buddha says, good, Sariputta, good. That's because you, don't, uh, you haven't found out for yourself so that you don't, take, you don't think things just 
because I happen to be your teacher and you consider to me consider me to be enlightened and wise, even then you still uh, wait and see to find out for yourself. So Ajahn Chah's uh, story or his his story doesn't quite appear exactly in that way um, in the uh, the suttas, uh, and it's a, a mixture of uh, a, a sutra in the Sanyutra Nikaya called the Eastern Gatehouse and also this. Um, Commentary to the Dhammapada, verse 97. So 30 bhikkhus from a village had arrived at the Jetavana monastery to pay homage to the Buddha. The Buddha knew that the time was right for those bhikkhus to attain arahantship. So he sent for Sariputta, and in the presence of those bhikkhus he asked, My son, Sariputta, do you accept the fact that by meditating on the senses one could realize Nibbana? Sariputta answered, Venerable sir, in the matter of the realization of Nibbana by meditating on the senses, it is not that I accept it because I have faith in you. It's only those who have not personally realized it that accept the fact from others. Sariputta's answer was not properly understood by the bhikkhus. They thought, oh, Sariputta has not given up wrong views yet. Even now he has no faith in the Buddha. So to say that again, so Sariputta's answer was, Venerable Sir, in the matter of realization of Nibbana by meditating on the senses, it is not that I accept it because I have faith in you. It's only those who have not personally realized it that accept the fact from others. That's what he said. Then the Buddha explained to them that the, uh, the, that the true meaning of Sariputta's answer was because Sariputta's answer is simply this. He accepts the fact that Nibbana is realized by means of meditation on the senses, but his acceptance is due to his own personal realization and not merely because I have said it or someone else has said it. Sariputta has faith in me. He also has faith in the consequences of good and bad deeds. So that whole story is a commentary uh, to the, this verse, which is uh, verse number 97 in the Dhammapada. <coughs> so the, the, um, the sort of surface level translation of it into English is, the man who is without blind faith, who knows the uncreated, who has severed all links, destroyed all causes for karma, good and evil, and thrown out all desires. He truly is the most excellent of men. Guess okay, Acharya Buddha Rakita's translation. The man who is without blind faith, who knows the uncreated, who has severed all links, destroyed all causes for karma and good and evil, and thrown out all desires. He truly is the most excellent of men. Interestingly, this is where we get to the puns, and with some wry irony, as the story here hinges upon misunderstood or double meanings, the Pali of this verse presents a series of puns. And if the underside of each pun uh, were to be translated, the verse would read thus. So if you take, you know, there's quite a number of words there that have double meanings. And <clears throat> it, comes, uh, uh, it comes out in that way as the man who is faithless, ungrateful, a burglar who destroys opportunities and eats vomit. He truly is the most excellent of men. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> that um, that all came from a uh, a, uh, a long uh, letter from uh, from Bhikkhu Bodhi when uh, <clears throat> we were we are, I was doing the notes for this book and and. Uh, and I was trying to track down the source of that quote, and I said, you know, um, I know you're, you're unwell, you have problems with chronic headaches, and I don't want to add to your difficulties, but, you know, where exactly in the suttas or the commentaries can you find this story? Because Ajahn Chah keeps telling this story, and he can't find it. And so he wrote back this four-page <laughs> extensive and detailed uh, account, which this is a brief rendering of. So that was on the, the theme of puns and double meanings in the in the Pali Suttas. So, uh, we got as far as uh, reading number 11 in this chapter 10. So the next reading is from the Ittivuttaka, uh, Sutta number 63. So if you remember, the, we finished the last uh, readings were about um, uh, the enlightened being um, unmeasurable, can't, can't be reckoned, can't be measured, can't be defined in our normal um, frameworks of, of concept and terminology and language. Well, this was said by the Lord. 
Because there are these three times. What three? Past time, future time, and present time. These bhikkhus are the three times. Perceiving what's expressed through concepts, beings take their stand on that. Not fully understanding it, they fall into the grip of death. But understanding what's expressed, one does not misconceive the speaker, that one's mind is fully freed into a peace that's unsurpassed. Understanding what's expressed, one who's at peace delights in that. Firm in Dhamma, knowledge perfect. They classify, but can't be classified. You follow that? So I'll read it again. So, perceiving what's expressed through concepts, beings take their stand on that. So, um, we say, today is a beautiful spring day. Or we say, today I was really depressed. Or we say, today is Tuesday. Yeah, they, um, we take those things to be true. We take the, uh, that, those kind of concepts or judgments to be um, substantial and, and real. As you said. So perceiving what's expressed through concepts, beings take their stand on that. Not fully understanding it, they fall into the grip of death. So as soon as the mind takes those um, concepts and uh, perceptions as a substantial reality, then uh, that is falling into the grip of death. Is the mind is attached to the to the five khandhas. But understanding what's expressed, uh, one does not misconceive the speaker. That one's mind is fully freed into a peace that's unsurpassed. So if uh, you you hear that kind of a judgment being formed, um, then the mind doesn't attribute it to uh, 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 or make it personal or attribute it to a, a, a nice to self or another. Uh, that one's mind is fully freed into a peace that's unsurpassed. Understanding what's expressed, one who's at peace delights in that. Firm in the Dhamma, knowledge perfect, they classify but can't be classified. So that when the, 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 um, the world of perceptions and concepts is understood for what it is, seen in its true light, as anicca dukkha anatta, uh, in, insubstantial, empty, a transient, not self, then um, the one who's at peace, that the peace that arises from that clear vision is enjoyable, and they delight in that. Firm in the Dhamma, knowledge perfect, they classify, but they but can't be classified. So it's a very succinct way of putting it, so that that, that awake mind can say, yeah, th this is blue, that's red, this is, uh, this is Tuesday. <laughs> Can, it can classify, it can use those concepts and forms, but um, subjectively, that, that which is knowing it uh, can't be classified, that there's no, there's no uh, definition or measurement or reckoning of, the, of, a, of a doer or a, a, an, a, an entity that is the, the agent. Make sense? So uh, again, interestingly, uh, the uh, chit of the householder was very um, wise and uh, enlightened. As he said, there's a whole section of the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya um, that are teachings of the householder chitta, and also um, the Itivutaka is the only whole collection of teachings that was um, committed to, or was um, uh, part of the canon that was um, recollected by a layperson. This was uh, Kujutara who was um, a, uh, a servant in the household of Queen Samavati. And she, because the, the King Udena um, had a bit of an ambivalent relationship to the Buddha, sometimes he was inspired and sometimes he was intimidated and threatened. Sometimes he had faith in the Buddha, sometimes he didn't. So at a certain point he banned um, the women from the, uh, from the palace, the, his queen and, uh, and her, her retinue, from going to listen to the Buddha's teachings. And so Kujutra, because she was, a, a, she was a servant, she was like a slave in the household, she was under the radar. Uh, the, she would, so it didn't really count, as it were. <laughs> so if she was a, 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 a kind of a high-up court lady, she would, uh, wouldn't have been forbidden, but because she was a servant, she was sort of down at the bottom of the heap, she kind of went under the radar. And uh, so she would go, and she was um, uh, blessed with, with uh, very uh, uh, great intelligence and perfect memory. So she would go and listen to the Buddha's Dhamma talks and then come back to the palace and then recount the talks 
to Queen Samavati and uh, all of her her uh, retinue in the, in the palace. And so the Itivutaka is that collection of the the teachings that uh, that uh, Kujutara remembered. So the next reading is uh, from the uh, once again the uh, the discourse on the simile of the snake. This is Sutta number twenty-two in the Majjhima Nikaya, which we've quoted from a lot already. <clears throat> so this is talking about the uh, the nature of the uh, enlightened mind, uh, one who has um, let go of all greed, hatred, and delusion. Because when the gods, with Indra, with Brahma, and with Pajapati, seek a bhikkhu who is thus liberated in mind, an arahant, they do not find anything of which they could say, quote, the consciousness of one thus gone is supported by this. Why is that? One thus gone, I say, is untraceable here and now. And that uh, term that the Buddha is using, one thus gone, is tathagata. So he's talking about not just, didn't just use the word tathagata to refer to himself, but also to any enlightened being. So, um, again, it's uh, again uh, speaking of this um, unapprehendable quality or, or unsupported quality or the, the uh, indefinable quality. The consciousness of one thus gone is supported by this. So even the highly exalted uh, uh, divine beings can't uh, can't sort of uh, apprehend where uh, a, uh, an, an arahant's mind, kind of quote unquote, is. But um, they, uh, as he said, one thus gone is untraceable here and now. And the, uh, the Buddha summarized the cause for this mysterious unapprehendability in another of his dialogues with Vachagota. And this is, um, again, the much quoted uh, Vachagota and Fire, the Agi Vachagota Sutta. That's Sutta number 72 in the Middle Length Discourses. So too, Vacha, the Tathagata has abandoned that material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. He has cut it all off at the root, made it like a palm stump, done away with it so that it is no longer subject to future arising. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness vacha. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the ocean. So this is one of my favorite passages from the uh, the canon. I actually have this written out and pinned up on the little notice board in my kuti. Um, so I see this all the time. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's a very clear expression in the sense of the, the Buddha talking about his, his subjective experience uh, and, uh, and pointing out that that subjective experience, even though the Tathagata is something, <laughs> That uh, you know, the, the the Tathagata is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the ocean. So there's an isness, there's a quality that absolutely is. And if you remember talking, we, we use that that word ati as a verb to be that describes that kind of timeless, transcendent quality of, of being. So there is something, some quality that absolutely is, but that quality can't be defined in in, in the terms of the five khandhas, in terms of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or thought, concept. And so when the, the Buddha says this, uh, and he's describing his own sort of internal experience, says that the mind is totally awake, but in terms of that, that awake um, uh, quality of awareness being uh, identified with anything, it's, it's not like the bridge is down, it's finished, cut off, it's, it's done. He's cut it off at the root, made it like a palm stump, done away with it, so that it's no longer subject to future arising. Uh, so deprived it for the con of the conditions for existence. So that it's like, there's, that's it, done, finished. There's no connection, there's no bridge. It's, <laughs> there's, there's no, uh, uh, there's no sort of, uh, way that that can be crossed. So that it's, uh, it's describing this profound quality of, of freedom, uh, but also, um, it's uh, it's very pointedly not a nihilistic teaching. Is what Karmanita misunderstood. Um, 
and even though it can sound kind of brutal, cut it off at the root, made it like a palm tree stump, deprived it of the conditions of existence, rendered it incapable of arising in the future. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's broken, done, finished, the bridge, is, the bridge is down, there's no connection. So that can feel like, oh dear. But it's rather like the, the, the handcuffs are off, the chains are broken, <laughs> the, keys, the keys just you know, uh, is destroyed. There's, there's, there's no chains that can, uh, that, can, uh, that can bind anymore. So it's like, it's not that anything has been lost apart from that which was inhibiting freedom. So this is, I, I feel I, this is one of the most um, beautiful and profound teachings. Also, um, in terms of uh, meditation, when, it, when we use the word Tathagata, you know, it can sound like, well, it's talking about these sort of exalted beings off, you know, in, uh, in ancient history. It's talking about the Buddha, and uh, uh, that's uh, uh, the, the great master and uh, uh, the uh, transcendent enlightened being who lived all that time ago. But this is also talking about your mind. It's talking about the awake quality of your mind, that in your best moments, you know, the, when the mind is truly awake and uh, attuned to, to reality, attuned to uh, its own nature, then there is that same kind of freedom, there's that same kind of, of unfetteredness. And that uh, there's a sort of perfect objectivity, but also the sense of isness, like the, the mind is the most real thing there is, but when you try to define what, what that is, <laughs> there's no words, there's no concept, there's no, uh, the, the thinking mind can't gain any, any traction. So I would suggest, just reflecting on this, it's not just talking about the exalted state of some other uh, holy being somewhere else, but this is, this is your mind, our mind. This is what it is describing, how when the, the mind is awake and, and is freed of greed, hatred and delusion, even if it's a, such a brief and momentary uh, experience, then there's that same kind of, um, of profound detachment and freedom, but also there's a, a, a connectedness that, there, that the mind has with what it's experiencing. It's not like totally spaced out. You know, the Buddha was not a zombie or kind of disconnected. He is incredibly mindful and attentive to everything around him. But there's this um, profound sense of, of, uh, of uh, limitlessness, uh, un unfetteredness, this quality of, of no, uh, no boundaries, no, no bondage. Um, no, uh, no limitation, and uh, that uh, this this passage is one that describes that. I feel very, very, very helpfully. And the next passage is uh, uh, covers a, 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 another instance where this appears, and this is from the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, um, the collected connected discourses on the undeclared. The preceding statement is also found in the Sanyutta Nikaya, in the opening entry of the connected discourses on the undeclared, like what the Buddha doesn't speak about. <laughs> a rich and fascinating collection of teachings. The Sutta recounts a meeting between the Arahant Bhikkhuni Kema and King Pasenadi of Kosala. The king had been traveling between Saketa and Savati, two of the big cities in uh, the Ganges Valley, and having to stop overnight in Toranavattu, he had asked if there were any local summoners or Brahmins whom he might visit and with whom he might have some spiritual discussion. The man sent out to search returns and says, Sire, there are no summoners or Brahmins in Toranavattu whom your majesty could visit, but Sire, there is the Bhikkhuni Kema, a disciple of the Blessed One. Now a good report concerning this revered lady has been spread aboard thus. She is wise, competent, intelligent, learned, a splendid speaker, ingenious. Let your majesty visit her. So she was the um, chief uh, female disciple of the Buddha. So the two, uh, um, uh, uh, there was uh, the Arahant uh, Kema and Arahant uh, Upalavanna. So they were the corresponding women um, to Sariputta Moggallana. So um, uh, the Bhikkhuni Kema, she was the one who was uh, uh, blessed with the most profound wisdom and the and most accomplished a Dhamma teacher, and uh, Upalavana was the one who was most accomplished in psychic powers. Also, uh, uh, 
Kema had been the uh, queen of um, King Bimbisara. She had left the palace life, and she was um, a, um, so she came from a, a, a royal family and entered the the nuns' order um, from a, a royal background. And it's so it's King Pasenadi, who is the king of Kosala, is coming to speak see her. But she had been married to King Bimbisara, who was the king of uh, of uh, of um, Magadha, in, and was the capital city was Rajagaha. So the king opens the dialogue by asking her whether a Tathagata exists after death or not, in the familiar quadrilemal form of the question. So that's, after death, does a Tathagata exist? Does he not exist? Does he both exist and not exist? Does he neither exist nor not exist? So that's got four uh, possibilities. So those are called lemmas. It's called a quadrilemma, so four, four wings. So a dilemma is when you've got two, two things to choose from. A quadrilemma is when you've got four things to choose from. <clears throat> so to each of the four lemmas, exists, doesn't exist, both does and does not, neither does nor does not, she replies, the Tathagata has not declared this. His perplexed majesty then asks. So it seems like he's never asked that question before, or he's never heard that being brought up in, in dialogue with the, the, the Buddha in the past. And uh, so this is the, the opening sutta of the connected teachings on the undeclared. So that's her response, is the Tathagata has not declared this. So the king then says, What now, revered lady, is the cause and reason that this has not been declared by the Blessed One? Well then, great king, I will ask you about this same matter. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, great king? Do you have an accountant or a calculator or mathematician who can count the grains of sand in the river Ganges thus. There are so many grains of sand. No, revered lady. Then, great king, do you have an accountant, or a calculator, or a mathematician, who can measure the water in the great ocean thus? There are so many gallons of water in the great ocean. No, revered lady. For what reason? Because the great ocean is deep, immeasurable, hard to fathom. So too, great king, the Tathagata has abandoned that material form feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. He has cut it off at the root, made it like a palm tree stump, done away with it, so that it is no longer subject to future arising. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness. He is profound, hard to fathom, like the great ocean. So any questions, thoughts, reflections on, on that? Profound? Unfathomable? Do speak up if there's any anything that needs clarifying. I um, had a little reflection there um, and, uh, on that chapter really. And, um, I remember a conversation once over the Mahendra Sandini Ponzan, you know, because her teacher had many famous monks come to seek counsel with him, as it were. Um, I asked her once, I said, um, was there anybody in particular who, you know, really moved you in this money came? And she said, without, without any hesitation, she said, uh, Marcos Alanda. And I said, why? You know, and she said, she was at the temple and she was cleaning the steps at the temple. Just, she said, I'm a nut, she's a very humble person, I'm a nut, that's my job, I clean steps and things. And at the bottom of the hill, she could hear a drum coming up the hill, just being beaten. And she kept looking, thinking, oh, it must be one of them then, you know. And then she saw this radiant monk coming up the hill, just happily banging his drum. The Guruji must have given, you know. And she couldn't believe she was a terrible monk. I know some Thai monks like to bang drums, you know. And she, she said it was just radiant, this person coming nearer and nearer. She was just a young nun, you know. And then he got to her and he went and bowed, the, the most beautiful bow you've ever seen. And the whole point of the story was, when I, I, I quizzed her, because I tried to get to the heart of the story, was that he had no attachment to status. He was free, you know, he had no, 
tradition and status didn't come into this was a person that when he saw a person he made you feel as though you were what he was looking at that you're that person that you're looking at you know that humbleness and that that uh, kind of action that teaches people without words and i think that's a that's a good indication of um possibly what we should look for in somebody when we think that they're they've ever passed along the line as it were mm -hmm. you know that humbleness and that, that action as a human being. So I just thought I'd share that. Yeah, it can take shape in all sorts of different ways. It's sometimes that would, uh, 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 Ajahn Chah would be, um, similarly, he, he could be a, a sort of surprisingly sort of, uh, gracious and, uh, and friendly to, um, uh, to some, uh, uh, you know, local person that um, is sort of very sort of far down in the social heap, but similarly he could be, uh, he could express that same kind of, of detachment by being incredibly rude, mm. and like just looking straight through someone like you're so not there, I'm not even ignoring you, <laughs> <laughs> which would also be a teaching that uh, that uh, is quite uh, uh, yeah. It, it's not just in gestures of of humility, but it can also be in gestures of intense authority. Yeah. So that it uh, it's not a kind of um, monochromatic. It's not just one shade, one 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 form that, that kind of thing takes. Ajahn Sundra, you had uh, something. Just reference to the reference on the sutta in which you differed on about the It's the the Dhammapada commentary to verse ninety seven of the Dhammapada. So, um, and also it's blended together with another discourse from the um, uh, from the Sanghutanikaya called the Eastern Gatehouse. And so you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi said, well, well, Ajahn Chah's story is a kind of merging of those two. I, I haven't got the, um, the, the re sort of a reference number for the, the Eastern Gatehouse Sutta, but if you, you can find it easy, easily enough. I, I'll look it up for, for tomorrow. But uh, he said it's a conflation. Like Ajahn Chah sort of put both of those together. It might be inappropriate, but I really couldn't get my head around the concept and the classified you were talking about, the idea of concepts mm -hmm. that can't be classified. In the beginning, I don't know if you want to talk about it, it's too late. No, no, it's not too late. These readings are for you. Pardon? These readings are for you, not for me. <laughs> I mean, you, plural. Yeah. <laughs> so so we, we live in a very um, conceptual world. And particularly our education in the West, is in, in, in the main part, our education is built around a kind of uh, model that ideas and concepts are the ultimate reality. And it sort of trickles down to us from the Greeks, Greek philosophers back in you know, time, of the time of the Buddha, that the world of thought is the, the closest you can get to reality. And that if you can... If you can think it, it means that you know, that's it's a true thing, and thought represents the uh, you know, ultimate reality of things, and that if you're really good with words and ideas, then that means you're close to reality. That's the that's in terms of logic, and and you're coming down from like Plato and Socrates and so forth. So that um, what that is then doing is saying that you know anything and this is there's a quote from uh, from wittgenstein later on we might, might get have time to get to that uh it that points out the limitations of that because you know you, you if the mind uh we can only talk about things that the mind can imagine or conceive but but there's a whole zones of reality that that are inconceivable that can't be talked about uh, words don't apply, or, or concepts can't can't form a description, and so that um, where uh, you have a, a very very different perspective uh, in the um, uh, say the not just the Buddha's teaching, but in in the the 
meditative traditions, in particular the wisdom traditions, so like you have in in Buddha Dhamma, you have in Advaita Vedanta or you know, other mystical teachings, where it, the point it's sort of starting from the place of the realization of that which is beyond words, that which is beyond language, and uh, from the realization of of the fundamental nature of reality, and recognizing that words, concepts can only give a a, a very um, uh, a sort of shallow representation. Uh, a kind of convenient fiction that can point to the truth but can never really encapsulate it. So that it's uh, like saying, you know, like the, um, uh, you use a word, like the word water is not water. But the, the sound represents the quality. But if you say, well, what actually is water? You know, you talk to a physicist, you say, well, what, what, is, a, what is a proton? What's an electron? They go, oh, don't ask. Yeah. How many weeks have we got? <laughs> and so you know they say well, well this is water the, the word points to that uh, that quality but if you sit down and try to describe exactly what a thing really is you you know you can fill volumes and volumes and volumes of philosophy books and you really can't actually say truly and completely in words what water is it's more of an experience so that uh, where you have the, the say the Buddha's teaching, or you have these other mystical traditions like Advaita Vedanta, or the kind of Sufi approach to um, Islam, or in the in some of the Jewish mystical traditions um, like Kabbalah and such like, that they they start from the mind awakening to the fundamental reality, and then the words and forms are kind of sketchy. They they're recognized from the get go as inferior and sketchy ways of, of pointing t to that or, or talking about ways to realize that. And so um, early on in the, these readings uh, there was uh, some references to the, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment and, and uh, immediately after the, the Buddha's enlightenment he, his, his first thought is like there's no way I can explain this to anybody. There's no point in me trying to teach this because that will just be quote unquote that will be a vexation and, uh, and troublesome for me because nobody will understand. So his first inclination after his enlightenment, you know, which is pretty amazing considering if you look at the mythology, you know, gazillions of lifetimes as a bodhisattva preparing for total enlightenment in order to be of value to all living beings. And then you finally get there to, to Anuttara Samasambodhi and then the, the first thought is, can't explain it. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. If you put it together like that, it's like, so after all those millions of years and countless lifetimes of preparation, then he finally gets to the, the realization and, and then it comes with it. After all that, it's, it's, not, it's impossible to explain it. So I must, I might also just spend my life uh, at ease by myself. And then the Brahma Sahampati shows up and says, Venerable Sir, please, for those with just a little dust in their eyes. So, because we live in a world of language and concepts, and, and Western education and our culture is very much built around ideas and worships ideas as, as a sort of ultimate truth, then it's, um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a strong conditioning. And so that when we talk about that which is beyond concept, or that which is outside the world of ideas, that which, is, that which can't be explained, then the thinking might, it's sort of seeing it in its own terms, well, it's got no value. If you can't explain it, it's, it's, it's it, it doesn't exist, it's got no value. And it's interesting that uh, this, the quote from Wittgenstein, which is this, this uh, famous little book he did called the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. So the finale, the last thing in the book, Proposition 7, is um, what we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. Wovon man nicht sprechen kann, darüber muss man schweigen. Probably much more poetic of a German person was saying. It's actually kind of alliterates. Wovon man nicht sprechen kann, darüber muss man schweigen. So apparently um, that was understood by his devoted followers as meaning uh, if you can't talk about it, it is valueless and meaningless. But apparently what he meant was the only stuff that's really important is the stuff you can't talk about. <laughs> Thus have I heard. So, uh, 
But so that so that's why you know you 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 think in terms of concept uh, and language. And also uh, Wittgenstein, also the other philosophers, they talk a lot about language and and the kind of we use language, but also language sets a limitation on our perception of reality. It's, it's also kind of interesting. Um, uh, <clears throat> one of the main people in the Western um, study of of language, psychology of language, was a guy called Benjamin Worf, an American. And he started out not as a psychologist, but as an insurance inspector. And why he got interested in the psychology of language was because he went to a, uh, a petrol station where there had been a big explosion. And so they were claiming insurance, and so he had to go along and do his, his um, insurance uh, claims job. And so then he asked the people, how did this explosion happen? And one of the, the people working at the, at the petrol station had said, well, uh, I saw that we, we, were, we were cleaning out this old gas tank, the petrol tank, the kind of big underground tank, and you know, I saw that it was empty, so I didn't think, uh, I didn't think twice because there, no, there was no fuel in it, there was no, there was no uh, liquid gas in it, petrol. So I just tossed the cigarette butt in there. <laughs> and uh, because it was empty, you know, I thought it, you know, it, it, was, it was safe. But then there was this huge explosion and the whole place blew up. And so he thought, isn't that interesting? Because it was empty of the liquid petrol, but it was filled with fumes. It was filled with vapor. And so, isn't that interesting? Because you know, you, your mind says, it's empty. Kaboom! <laughs> the whole thing blows up. But if he, yeah, that's the logic. But if he said, oh, it's full of explosive fumes, then, you know, what am I doing with this cigarette? Um, so he got fascinated by the very, very uh, uh, real-world impact of language, and so then he left his insurance job and uh, became a psychologist of language. Benjamin Worf, W H O R F. So that um, uh, <clears throat> when the when the the um, the, the Buddha is uh, he's a brilliant speaker, incredibly imaginative, and very, very skillful, incredibly skillful in his use of language and imagery, similes and, and constructions. So he really understood how the mind works and how people think in images or how to use lists to help you remember things or, or graphic um, descriptions, similes to help retain memory. So he was very, very skillful with language, but also along the way he's recognizing, well, these are just words. This is only pointing to. And in a way, it's right from the time of the Buddha's enlightenment and that insight of like, you can't explain this. He, he realized, well, the thing to do is to use language to point out the way of practice. You use language to talk, to talk about the conditioned things. And that's the miracle is that you can, by, by arranging the, the conditioned realm in certain ways, the mind can awaken to the unconditioned. And so that, um, as it's uh, the one, another phrase is, uh, we are lured into the eternal realities through well-timed illusion. That's not from the suttas. We are lured into the eternal reality through well-timed illusion. So that that and that's all the the uh, one of the things about teachings and language is that the, the Buddha said there's two kinds of miracles. There's the miracle of psychic power, like flying through the air or reading people's minds or walking through walls and such like. <clears throat> there's the miracle of psychic power and there's the miracle of instruction. And of these two, the miracle of instruction is the superior. So just through hearing words, which are conditioned and limited, then the mind can be, uh, be totally liberated from all... Uh, yeah, well, the, that and that's that's a, he, he's considered that a more of a miracle than being able to walk through walls or fly through the air or look at past lives and such like. That how amazing that you can hear you can hear words and the effect of the words can catalyze the mind being liberated from all greed, hatred, and delusion. That's a miracle. It's it's, it's very similar to this place. Actually, it's a catalyst. <laughs> I found it a catalyst for. 
Well, that's what it's supposed to be, so glad to hear it's working. <laughs> that's why I'm here. May I ask what exactly the language he spoke? The what? What language exactly he spoke to your knowledge? Um, well, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, the... The um, the few things I read about it say that the, he the, he probably spoke what was called Magadhi, which is likely to have been very close to Pali. But uh, Pali was a um, uh, a kind of what they call a lingua franca. So it was a language that was used over a variety of regions in that the Ganges Valley area of India and uh, so that uh, the the teachings were remembered in Pali but he would probably have spoken something that was close to that but not exactly the same it's like a a, 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 a local dialect but also but going back to um, uh, the earlier readings when I was talking about, about Venerable Ananda Maitreya's comments about how you one of the, the styles of the Buddha's teaching is you get these long strings of adjectives or, or nouns like chakum udupadi nyang udupadi panya udupadi vija udupadi aloko udupadi so that then like uh, uh, vision arose knowledge arose light arose wisdom arose understanding arose and one of the, the points that because um, that that the, the strings sometimes you get like eight or nine basically identical words all in a in a in a string and venerable ananda maitreya who was he spoke about 13 or 14 different languages, including several Indian languages. His theory was that uh, probably that the Buddha was using words that were familiar in the local dialects, so that, say, in Vangsa, they would say wisdom, but in, in Magadha, they would talk about knowledge, and, and in Uttarakuru, they would talk about the light. They all mean the same thing, but they're, they're using the words in those in a slightly different ways, and so that his theory was that he was probably speaking in a way that was sort of trying to include the the languaging of the, the, the audience, because there's quite a big you know, variety of people that are there. Also, what the 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 kind of terms that the, the nobles would use, or what the the kind of local farmers and village people would use, and uh, and so he would uh, say speaking in a range of. Um, uh, dialects that would be able to because he was trying to communicate you know it wasn't just like delivering his speech in his own preferred tongue he's trying to connect to the people that are there and if you've got half a dozen farmers from a you know, local village in Magadha and you've got a you know 20 people that have come down from Uttarakuru you, if you're talking to the whole group you've got to speak in a way that's there you know, everyone's gonna be able to connect with with what you're saying so I, that made a lot of sense to me um, and um, you know it's rather I mean here I'm Ravati yeah. when I uh, when I came back I was away in the States for about 15 years and when I left here um, you'd say uh, 50 60 70 percent of the community were uh, had English as their first language most people I mean they're not entirely but uh, it's probably about 60 or 70 percent of the community were either British or American Australian New Zealanders or whatnot and Maybe forty percent were from from other countries. I came back from the states, and it's the other way around. <laughs> so you have, uh, I think, about thirty-five or forty percent of the community have English as their first language, and sixty-five or seventy percent don't. <laughs> so I first came back here, and I started giving dhamma talks, and I, <laughs> I would make kind of cultural references. You know, I'd make uh, use an example of a, a of a. TV program that, that I saw when I, when I was a child, or um, uh, using some kind of uh, uh, idiom, an English idiom, uh, <clears throat> and um, and then you could feel that half the people in the in the temple are going, huh? <laughs> also, it, it was it was exacerbated, which is a very long word, also made more difficult by in the states. It was it was even more monocultural than here. So basically, everybody in the monastery was sort of middle-class, educated American, 
Ajahn Pasno and I were the only two non, uh, non-Americans. He's Canadian, I'm British. Everyone else was American. And so uh, they're extremely uh, sort of, uh, monocultural. Uh, and so you basically knew that everyone had the same background the, uh, that you're talking to when you're giving a, a Dhamma talk. So uh, the first few months I was back here, I kind of get, kept getting this sort of blank out experience, like they won't have seen that TV program. Seventy percent of the people did not grow up watching the, the Magic Roundabouts, <laughs> and they don't know who Zebedee is, you know, or Florence or Dougal. Right now, some of you are thinking, "Who? Florence? What?" Yeah. <clears throat> and so. Uh, so I had to modify my language, and also because uh, uh, realizing, I mean, right like right now, I'm speaking uh, more slowly and clearly than I would in an ordinary conversation, because more than half the people here don't have English as their first language. So if you want to communicate, you have to keep it simple. Don't use long words like exacerbate <laughs> or unapprehendability. <laughs> Unless you give a reference or a checklist where people can go, to, how do you spell that? So that uh, um, uh, I'm not sure, but the um, the there are all kinds of linguistic scholars, and nowadays the, the, they have all uh, very ingenious ways of working things out in terms of the age of scriptures or the way. Sentences are constructed or words are put together, so they they they're amazingly clever in their research nowadays. But I haven't really looked at it closely. But um, the the general uh, my understanding is the general perception is what the Buddha spoke was was close to Pali. And the pronunciation, if you hear a a, a, a Sinhalese person or an Indian person reciting Pali. Um, then the the kind of um, representation of the the sounds is, is probably very very close to what was there. Whereas um, when you you've grown up using the um, the same kind of um, consonant sounds and vowel sounds, that uh, it's uh, it sounds very very different when you have a, uh, a kind of European chanting or speaking part. Uh, the they're they're much more naturally making those. Um, what's called retroflex consonants, so that they, the difference between t and t is very, very obvious. Or t and t. You know. Whereas, you know, huh? What? Most of us wouldn't catch that. So, that actually brings us to a fairly convenient stopping point. Didn't get quite as far as I had planned to, but we'll, uh, I think we'll just leave it there for uh, for today. Is there any other final questions? Just a quick one. I was curious yes. about the two nuns, because one nun had profound wisdom and mm-hmm. teaching abilities, and the other one had psychic abilities. I didn't think that psychic abilities were held up by... I just was interested to know what would have been... Well, the, uh, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly why. But uh, for both the um, the women's order and the men's order, the they have like the the, the the sort of two leading people are the one who has most profound wisdom is will be um, Sariputta and Kema, and then the one with the the most accomplished in psychic powers would be um, Upalavanna and Mahamogalana. So. Um, I think it also represents an extraordinarily um, uh, accomplished uh, a quality of accomplishment in meditation uh, as well. And uh, the Buddha certainly had lots of psychic powers himself, more than anybody else. But he didn't he didn't use them a great deal after the first few years. Um, But uh, yeah, I think there's about fifteen or eighteen on on both the. The, the sides of the community, both on the, the women's side and the men's side, that the Buddha names, so the one who's um, got the, the greatest faith or the one who has got the, who's um, most uh, um, reclusive or one who has the uh, sort of uh, most diligent in ascetic practices. Yeah. 
and uh, but they're the, the the two that come out of the top. And I th it might also be connected with uh, the the two um, chief modes of enlightenment. You have like the Panyavimuti, liberation through wisdom, and Chetovimuti, the liberation through mind development. And so that the uh, the Panyavimuti track is uh, is like the 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 way of Sariputta is um, uh, the through the development of wisdom, and then the it doesn't involve so uh, you know the psychic powers. I mean, Sariputta was a very accomplished meditator, but he had no psychic powers at all. And uh, the other side is the Chetovimuti, so which is de developing a lot of jhana and you know very. Um, much focused on the state, deep states of meditation, and that uh, produces the the um, psychic powers in some people. So it, that's it, 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 it. Certainly, you have those two tracks, Panyavimuti and Chetavimuti, and that the the two senior, sort of the two leading disciples, um, and also mythologically, you know, you know, every every Buddha has. These uh, sets of disciples, and then the, and when they talk about the the, pre, you know, the previous Buddhas, and they they name the the two chief disciples on the men's side, the two chief disciples on the women's side, and they and they always have, as far as I'm aware, they always the one who has the greatest wisdom and the one who has the greatest psychic powers. But exactly why I cannot say. Um, you know, when, when it's um, said like this, um, the way it affects. Yeah, there, there's certainly the, there's um, that that's talked about that you know, they 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 support each other, they condition each other, but also in terms of people's dispositions, so that the you know people have their own particular uh, characteristics or their own inclinations, so that the uh, some people have a natural inclination towards analytical wisdom, other people have a natural inclination towards psychic powers and such like. But it's, I mean, it's, Sariputta was a was a very very accomplished meditator, and the Buddha praises him for that. He said, just as if you were a a, a wealthy merchant, you could sort of pick out of the, the 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 cupboard you know what you want to wear in the morning, what you want to wear at midday, what you want to wear in the evening. So too, Sariputta can choose which mind state he wants to abide in. He can sort of choose which state of meditation he wants to go and sort of put on and, and I think I'll just spend the morning in third jhana and then <laughs> the afternoon well it's a kind of an Arupa jhana-ish afternoon let's say <laughs> spend the, uh, the the afternoon in the Neva Sanyan in neither perception or non-perception for the afternoon and and then I think uh, this evening I think I'll just sort of do you know, second jhana will be nice for the evening yeah. <laughs> so Sariputta could just choose and and was uh, you know accomplished in that way so it wasn't that he was not a, a, a Brilliant meditator, but that didn't produce any psychic powers. So there's this there's a very sweet encounter or dialogue between him and Moggallana there. Um, this is in the Yaka Sangyuta, I think, the connected discourses about demons. And the, the, <clears throat> it was a full moon, and they they're sitting in the forest. And they've got freshly shaven heads. And uh, these two yakas, it says these two yakas were flying south on some business. <laughs> you know, these these two demons happen to be heading south you know, on Yaka business and they're, they're flying over the forest and they see Sariputra and Moggallana sitting there in the glade and the moon you know, the moonlight shining off their freshly shaven heads and then this one Yaka says you know, look at those two shavelings down there I'm going to take my club and, and smack one of them on the head and then his friend says uh, and Venerable friend, you know, th these are disciples of the of the Blessed One. You know, I wouldn't mess with them if, if I was you. <laughs> you know, you're going to get in trouble if you if you get uh, if you get involved with those guys. So that then uh, the Yaka said, "Well, I'm going to go hit him anyway." So then uh, he 
comes down in the forest and he has this, this, this club and he smacks Sariputra on the head with a quote-unquote a blow that would have felled a bull elephant. And then the, the, the club just sort of bounces off Sariputra's head and doesn't do any harm at all. And then this, the ground opens up and this sheet of flame appears and the yakra is sort of swallowed into the hell realms. <laughs> Well, his mate flies on south and <laughs> keeps going. <laughs> okay, okay, I didn't see anything. <laughs> so then, uh, after a little time, then Sariputta uh, opens his eyes and, Mogul- and he sees Moggallana kind of like, you know, looking at him and says, Moggallana says, um, uh, are you feeling all right? And he said, yes, yeah, I feel fine. You're not... Ill, you don't feel uncomfortable or ill with anything? No, I feel fine. I've got a slight headache, but you know, apart from that, nothing. And then uh, Mahamogalana says, This is amazing, this is incredible. Venerable Sariputta, you realize this yaka came down and smacked you on the head with, his, uh, with a blow that would have felled an elephant. And, and yet the Venerable Sariputta's his absorption, his meditation is so strong that he, he merely has, quote-unquote, a slight headache. You know, this, is, this is incredible, this is amazing. How wonderful is the, the power of the meditation of uh, the Venerable Sariputta. And then Sariputta says, well, Moggallana, you know, you're impressed with me. I'm impressed with you. You know, you can see all these yakas flying about doing this stuff. You know, I can't even see a mud sprite. You know, a little kind of, you know, my, I've got so few psychic powers, I can't even see like a, a pixie, a little mud sprite. It says, you know, the, the, and I have no ability even to see a mud sprite, and yet you can have this uh, vision of all these different realms of beings that's so easy for you. So I'm really impressed with you. And then the sutta closes by saying, and so these, the, these two great beings applauding each other's uh, spiritual accomplishments. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, went, you know, carried on abiding in peace. So they were kind of good friends, and they were both sort of <laughs> impressed with each other for different reasons. Okay. On that note, that's enough for today. <laughs>